Hi, welcome to the Your Adrenal Fix podcast, where we help exhausted and burnt out adults learn the truth about adrenal fatigue so that they can get their health back quickly. My name is Dr. Joel Rosen, and I've suffered with my own adrenal fatigue problem, and now I've made it my mission to tell the truth about adrenal fatigue so that we can get to the root cause of your problem and really teach you how to put the puzzle pieces together so that you could tap into your hidden energy reserves and have all day energy. So this podcast is for anyone who's struggling for years or feeling overwhelmed and burnt out or you're just feeling stuck you're going to get cutting edge information from all our different guests in different respected health fields to give you those important tidbits of information so that you can actually act on them and improve your health join us for our podcast i know you will enjoy it All right, hello everyone and welcome back to another edition of Your Adrenal Fix where we teach exhausted and burnt out adults the truth about their health so that they can get their health back. And I actually had to do inventory on what number this is, Morley. This is number seven. Um, And there's always new information, especially when you go on a strabatical when you're when you're into the <laughs> research and you're looking at what's going on and all that good stuff I, i'm i'm sure everyone knows who you are um but just in case they don't um i just wanted to mention that you are the um organizer and the producer and the founder of the root cause protocol as well as the magnesium advocacy group and really i believe your mission morally is to dispense the truth on what's going on in the world and what's going on with mineral balancing. And maybe you can just sort of piggyback from there. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate the intro and my gosh, seven, seven conversations. That's amazing. Um, I, I like to separate fact from fiction. And I think what dominates the world of healing and nutrition is a lot of fiction, a lot of narrative and people don't realize that. And so it's been a, um, an amazing process of discovery over the last 15 years to see what does the literature really say? Because I, I regard that as a, if you will, a bedrock of reality. Because uh, if you're going to uncover some uncomfortable truths, you're going to publish it. And uh, there's a lot of a lot of gold and then the, and then now hills. And I've been blessed enough to be able to identify. Uh, a lot of articles. In fact, I, I came across a, a piece of paper that I uh, put together. It was February of this year, and it was top 100 articles that I had read. And uh, I just wanted to challenge myself. And I think I did like 65 just by memory alone. <laughs> and I've been working to fill out the rest of the uh, the other 35. But, you know, it's there are about 25 or 30 authors who I've really come to rely on. And they're all truthers. They're all really committed to making sure that people know the the cold, hard reality of what really runs the body, what runs the the planet, if you will, in terms of a metabolic standpoint. And it's been fascinating to kind of weave that together in a tapestry and help people understand what's going on. No, that's awesome. I know one of your sayings, and you've mentioned the story about how when you asked a, a noted researcher, and I don't remember who it was, what's new and he he mentioned to you it's not what's new it's what's enduring and what's great is that i would have been more skeptical to think that newer produced research would be stand the test of times and and endure because of 
the politics and the the gaming and the motivation behind the research, but it sounds like the the research is still enduring as it as it tre- trudges through t- through um, time. I guess is that correct? Absolutely true. No, it's 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 interesting. I mean, research has certainly evolved uh, during the course of the the nineteenth and twentieth centuries, and now the twenty first century. Um, but it's it still has this um, bedrock of commitment to what's really going on. I, I think things did change though during the the Reagan era when um, the funding for research moved away from the government and went more towards um, big pharma. A lot of research is being funded by the the, uh, the fox that's guarding the hen house. I'm like, eh, we've got to be careful about the conclusions we draw from that. But for the most part, it is this paragon of stable truth that we can rely on. Right. And I guess it's, you, you know who the author is. And once they've established their credibility, you, you're more relying yeah. on, on the truth of that. So, so absolutely. Yeah. Right. So, so, so one of the things that we've been meaning to touch base for a while is the PAM enzyme and how volatile, uh, pivotal that is for, for everything that goes on in the body. So maybe give the listeners who, who, even if they haven't followed, followed all six previous ones of these ones, but why, why it fits so nicely in the jigsaw of this mosaic. Well, it's, it's interesting. Um, there's a, uh, a theme around blue when it comes to copper. Uh, we've talked about the blue protein, ceruloplasmin. Uh, we, we've talked about the blue complex, which is complex four of the mitochondria. We've talked about the locus ceruleus, the blue dot, which is at the top of our brain stem on either side. There's literally a blue dot <clears throat> that's full of copper that's critical for maintaining our our health and well-being. And I've often thought that there was a a blueprint, but I wasn't quite sure what it was. And so uh, my first awareness of uh, the importance of a a blueprint, if you will, goes back to 2010. I I read the book Mastering Leptin, a great book, and talking about the the hormone that tells us to stop eating. <laughs> it's like, I've had enough, you know. But but what people may not know is that if if we have too much insulin in our body, because we have insulin resistance, uh, the insulin overpowers the leptin. And so when there's insulin resistance, we're just going to keep eating. And that's that's a serious problem. That's that's behind a lot of the um, weight gain and obesity issues that people have around the world. But it really begs the question: Well, why aren't these why aren't these hormones working right? Why, why is there insulin resistance? And so, if if I were to give you a a toy right now, be, be kind of hard because there's a couple hundred miles in between us. But but let's say I handed you a toy, and it, and I forgot to put it put a battery in it. After a little while, you'd stop playing with it. And if we went clinical, we'd say, well. Joel is suffering from playtime resistance. What's well, not resistance? The, the, the toy doesn't work because it's missing a battery. Well, it turns out that insulin is just like a little toy. It needs a battery. It needs to be turned on. 
And I didn't know. I mean, I've been, I, like I said, I've been studying the hypothalamus and some of the neuro uh, peptides that are produced and regulated out of the hypothalamus. Going back to 2010, I was for some reason I was just fascinated by this part of the brain, and it's you know it's where electrical energy becomes chemical energy, and that's where all the master regulatory hormones are. You know things that like that run the adrenals and run the thyroid and run a lot of things in our body. Um, it, it's sort of a who's who of, of neuroendocrine chemistry, and so I didn't really appreciate what was involved with an enzyme called the PAM enzyme, spelled P-A-M, but it stands for a big word. It's called peptidoglycine alpha-amidating monooxygenase. Like, wow, that's a mouthful. So what, what it's referring to is peptides that end in with a glycine group, and they're always on what's called the C-terminal end. So a protein chain has an N term, terminal and a C terminal. And the C terminal is always next to a glycine amino acid. It's the way Mother Nature designed it. And what this PAM enzyme does is it goes after the, the, um, the glycine, pep, the, the peptide with the glycine at the end, and it cuts off the C terminal, the carboxyl terminal, that's carbon with oxygen and hydrogen, takes that off and then puts on uh, an amine group, which is nitrogen and two hydrogen, and it turns it on. It's like literally going from black and white to suddenly the lights are on. And when I first started studying this enzyme, there were 13 neuropeptides. You know, things like um, TRH, thyroid regulating hormone, and CRH, corticotropin regulating hormone, and oxytocin, and vasopressin, and these big blockbuster uh, hormones. Well, thir 13 gave way to 43. 43 gave way to over 70. Over 70 gave way to 279. And 279 recently gave way to 827 of these signaling peptides that are just like our cell phones. We use cell phones to communicate with each other, right? And if, if we don't have power, and if we don't have bars, our, we, you and I can't talk to each other, right? And these signaling peptides are the same way. So insulin, leptin, ghrelin, all these amazing hormones are signaling peptides and they don't work unless they're turned on. Now, the part that's absolutely amazing is that I originally thought that, that the PAM enzyme only worked in the hypothalamus. So if we drill a hole here and drill a hole here, we're gonna to get to the hypothalamus. And it's the size of an almond, it's got 64 chambers. It's it's absolutely amazing what, what happens there. But I really thought it was just restricted to the hypothalamus. Well, it turns out it's not just the hypothalamus. It's the pituitary. It's the whole endocrine system. It's the adrenals. It's organs. It's bones. It's all of our tissue. 
needs to have access to this TAM enzyme. And think of it this way. The body makes what are called pro-hormones. They're not active, but they're in a state where they can be made active. So think of it as think of it as uh, parked cars on a highway. They're there, they're parked, they can't be used, but they're available. And the PAM enzyme is what turns them on so they can get on the Autobahn and start to do their thing. And what really happens is the you know, a hormone like insulin, when it gets, when it becomes bioactive, when it becomes fully active, it's able to fit into its receptor perfectly. And, and that everything is all about making sure that there's a perfect connection between the hormone and its receptor, because what's the hormone doing? It's, it's got signals, right? It's got to download its, its payload. It's got to inform the cell and the tissue about what needs to happen. Well, if it's not active, it doesn't have the right shape. It's not hydrophobic. It, its half-life is shortened because it's not active. And so it really compromises the body's ability to communicate and regulate when the PAM enzyme is not working. Well, what makes the PAM enzyme so special? Well, it, it has very finite requirements. It's gotta have copper. It's gotta have oxygen, monooxygenase. Oh, it, it's gonna work on the oxygens that are there. It's gotta have ascorbate, not ascorbic acid. Ascorbate is very different. When you look at ascorbate, you'll see a bunch of oxygens are available on the, on the um, outside of the uh, molecule. And it needs the right pH. And what will surprise people is to find out that it prefers acidic pH, not alkaline pH. So if you've got a Kangen machine, you might want to unplug it right now, because maybe you don't need to be doing that. But the thing is, this enzyme is the blueprint. I'm, I'm convinced of it because it is activating 800 of these signaling peptides all over the body. And, and the thing is that, that we've got to really be mindful of that and be aware that, well, if, if insulin can't get into its receptor and, and signal what's going on with the sugars, well, then the sugars start to build up, the insulin starts to build up, and then there's this cascade of dysfunction that follows it. And one of the most important aspects of that is that when sugars do build up, people can go into a state of what's called hyperglycemia, high blood sugar. Well, a group of Russian scientists figured out in 2019 that if, if the body does become hyperglycemic, it affects the copper protein, ceruloplasmin. And ceruloplasmin is the master antioxidant uh, protein that runs our body and it blows up and the copper comes leaking out. And what doctors have been trained to do is blame the copper for the rising sugar when in fact it's the sugar 
that's affecting the conformational structure of the ceruloplasmin. And no one's thinking about that. No one's thinking about the fact that, oh, wait, the insulin isn't signaling right because it's not the right shape, can't get into the receptor. And then that's going to affect all the other downstream. And so think of it as a, a Russian doll, right? This is insulin. Well, there's a peptide over here called chromogranin A. You may never have heard of it, CGA. Well, if CGA doesn't get activated, insulin can't get activated. And so there's a whole family of, of peptides in between chromogranin A and insulin that all need to be activated. And it's, it's like, oh my gosh. It's, it's, it's beautiful, it's elegant, but it's, it's a lot more complicated than we realized. And so all of the focus is on insulin. No one's talking about glucagon. No one's talking about GLP. No one's talking about all these other intermediary um, hormones that are critically important. They may not be as big as insulin, but they're as important as insulin. And so here's the, here's the part that I think will surprise you. And then I think there's a part that will shock you. So the part that will surprise you and you and your listeners is to find out that this PAM enzyme is not taught in doctor school. I've talked to dozens of doctors. Nobody knows what I'm talking about. And I, and I don't bring it up to, be, to embarrass anyone. I'm just like, this is a really important part of our physiology. And there's a big blank slate out there about what's going on and what this thing does. And so the fact that the doctor doesn't know about it and the fact that you know our clients and patients don't know about it, that's really significant. But the part that I learned yesterday, which really surprised me, was that there's, as I've said, there's a, a, a protein chain has two ends to it. There's an end terminal and a C terminal. Well, the end terminal is agnostic about whether the protein is turned on or not. The C terminal is very much interested in knowing whether it's on or off. All of the assays of blood markers looking at proteins and hormones and signaling peptides are based on the N, N terminal. None are on the C terminal. So basically we're getting information, we're getting blank information about these are all parked cars on a highway that can't be driven. And we're making critical decisions about people's health based on incomplete information. And I think that's shocking that, that the entire infrastructure of medicine is based on, the, no one knows about this enzyme, and no one is testing the right end of the, of the peptide. And I just, I'm like, oh my gosh, this, this, is, this is mind blowing. And then you realize that the PAM enzyme, it, it really is the blueprint because it's, it's activating all these signaling peptides that are communicating, saying, how are you doing? What's going on? Do you need a, a, an adjustment here or there? You, you, you know, you as a chiropractor know how important adjustments are. And that's what these signaling peptides are doing is constantly adjusting their signal, adjusting the information based upon what's happening. And it's all based on 
the intelligence of copper. And it's like a complete uh, component of physiology that no one is talking about, no one is aware of. I mean, there's people at Hopkins and University of Connecticut Medical Center that are very well steeped in this, but it's not mainstream at all, either with the professionals, with the lay people. And then we find out the laboratories aren't even testing the right form of these peptides. So it, I just, I find it um, absolutely mind-blowing. And I appreciate the chance to have this conversation to to kind of tease it out a little bit and help people understand why it's so important. Yeah, I know that's awesome. Thank you for your work that you do to to tease that out. Morley, as far as a couple things come in my brain when you're when you're saying this is so no one's talking about it, but it's there for the research. So or there for the finding the 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 articles that are being published about it. So what sort of as a side question, what do you feel happens where this research that doesn't just get to go out in, you know, in an email, and then next thing you know, it appears in a in a publication. It's got to be uh, approved and so forth. But when it is, wh- why is it not being taken by the baton and and passed to the next level? What what goes wrong with that? Uh, it's a wonderful question. I've I've thought about that many times. I, I've just come to realize that there's a Chinese wall between the research labs and the classrooms. And uh, the, the the adage is it takes 40 years before the bench research gets into the um, the bedside. And I don't know what that's about. I mean, it's just, it's almost like a whole generation of practitioners needs to fall off before the next generation will pick it up. Right. But it's like, it's, um, it, it, it doesn't pass the logic test, does it? If we, if we learn that this enzyme is so critical, why wouldn't we want everyone to know about this? And you know, people are always uh, challenging me about the, the term, and we, you and I have talked about it, the term of copper toxicity. Well, you know, I've, I finally changed my whole narrative around it. You know, I've decided that, that the, they're right. Copper is toxic to big pharma profit. That's really what it is. Copper does so much inside our body to create energy, clear exhaust. You know, it, it colors everything, it connects everything. And now we find out this profound function of activating all of it, of the uh, endocrine, uh, exocrine, and paracrine, and neuroendocrine, and enteroendocrine. I mean, so it's like it's just unbelievable numbers of um, um, signaling peptides that, that need to be turned on, and and it's and it's not that what, what people need to realize is some of these peptides upregulate, some downregulate, and they're in communication with each other, you know? So glucagon is supposed to be communicating with adiponectin and, you know, and with insulin and, and angiotensin is connecting with uh, uh, adiponectin as well. And it's like leptin and ghrelin are supposed to be communicating with each other, but if there's too much insulin, it doesn't happen. And so it's, it's just this um, um, incredible menagerie of chemistry that needs to be active, not parked on the side of the highway. And it's and I think for the for the uh, listeners to understand, despite the 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 chest beating out there that we're anemic and copper toxic, the truth is just the opposite. But we live in a a, a world where glyphosate 
is a dominant feature of farming. Well, glyphosate's a perfect copper chelator. Fructose is a dominant part of food processing. Well, fructose is a perfect copper chelator. Um, we live in a world where medicine is using antibiotics and statins very prevalently, and they have a huge effect on copper status. Well, when you start to combine all of that, and th those are just four components, you begin to see the disappearing batteries inside our body. And despite the appearance of this really sophisticated uh, breakdown of the human body, it's a body that's missing its batteries. And, and then we've talked about it. Copper is the general and iron is the foot soldier. And it's no more sophisticated than that. You don't need to be in the military to know there's a difference between generals and foot soldiers. Generals have more brass, right? They've got more brass on their shoulder. Well, that's made of copper. But if you really want to clarify it, just picture the Battle of the Bulge without Patton. Well, that's the impact of a general. The reason, the reason why he was so important, he, in, in two days, moved 200 tanks and 200,000 men from going east to going north. At one point, he was directing traffic. So that's the power of a general. And I think copper plays the exact same role inside our body. And, and if our environment can't communicate with itself, both our internal environment communicating with itself, but also reacting to the external environment, well, then we can't possibly expect to be in balance and be in homeostasis. Right. So so if I'm listening to this and I'm not understanding 100% of the science, but thinking that it really does sound like doom and gloom, as far as is this one of those instances where a broken clock is right twice a day kind of thing, Morley, where <laughs> the sense is where we do get enough, uh, like, why aren't we dying like yesterday? Like, why? I mean, why? Like, how do we with this all being said? And the PAM enzyme not basically charging the the these hormones to communicate. Why do we see improvements in longevity and in some people? And why you know? I mean, I guess to play devil's advocate, what, why are sure. we able? To, yeah. No, I, I think we have to we have to draw a distinction between lifespan and health span. People may be living longer. I don't think they're living better. I think there's ample proof that uh, we are a pretty sickly lot on this planet. Uh, when you begin to get into the statistics of the number of people who have metabolic syndrome, the number of people who have diabetes alone, heart disease is still the number one cause of death. Cancer is right on its heels. Um, you begin to look at the impact that uric acid is having, in large part because of the level of fructose in our diet. Well, this is not doom and gloom. This is trying to put an electron microscope on what's the problem. Why are we why are we in this sea of metabolic dysfunction and not understand what, what's going on? And it's because this enzyme is a critical component of our uh, neurochemistry and our physiology. And if it's not working, then we will get diabetes and we will get anxiety, and we will get osteoporosis, and we will get, you know, all sorts of uh, physical ailments. And if you don't know about copper, 
if you don't if you don't understand the incredible power and impact of of bioavailable copper then it then the Merck manual makes sense oh there's 20,000 different forms of disease and we just have to tinker away at each one or we could be, begin to understand oh so we've got over 800 signaling peptides and they all got to be fed with copper and they know how to work and that's the that's the pioneering work of um, Richard Maines and Betty Iper uh, have assembled an amazing team of people when they were at Hopkins and they went up to uh, Yukon Medical Center in the uh, beginning of 2000. And they did some really important research in 2009, 10, and 11. And the bottom line was they, they were studying uh, defects in the PAM gene and what happened to the expression of the PAM enzyme as a result of those defects. And they looked at the impact of copper deficiency, studying you know, rats and mice. And what they found was that there was a parallel expression between whether there was a defective gene or whether it was a copper deficient situation. Then they did the most amazing thing. They fed the rodents copper. And guess what happened? The enzyme turned right back on and was just fine. Thank you very much. And so I think to dispel this idea of doom and gloom, no, this is sharpen the focus of why we're all struggling with our well-being because we didn't know that the environment of copper has been shrinking outside of our body and inside of our body and we don't have that copper and if we can't make it bioavailable then the body doesn't communicate the body can't maintain its homeostasis the body can't regulate energy production and clear the exhaust. And that's really important to understand. So I think it's a, it's a case of um, we've been led to believe in disease when in fact, wow, there are these incredibly sophisticated mechanisms of communication that just aren't being fed properly. And our ancestors didn't have the, the challenges, the toxins, the, the, um, all the barriers to uh, maintaining good health that we have in the modern era. And I think it's important for people to realize just how central this one enzyme is to so much of what ails us. Yeah, it almost seems like the analogy I see is, is that we, we've been bitten by a venomous snake and the antidote is out there, but we're searching high and low uh, and selling other things that um, contain massive amounts of profit for, for the people that produce them. Right. to not give the actual anecdote that's simple. And is that is that a fair analogy? Yeah, it is. In fact, it, it's very fitting because um, all of the critters that have venom, you know, the bugs, the, the mosquitoes, the, the snakes, the scorpions, whatever, um, they have a, a very targeted focus. Their venom wipes out a key copper enzyme called superoxide dismutase. And what the venom depends on is the PAM enzyme inside that critter. And so the critters that are biting us aren't faced with the, uh, the, the devastating loss of copper in their supply, in their food supply, but the humans that they're biting are struggling 
to get the PAM enzyme to work, to respond to the bite. That's where all the, that's where all the controversy is. The PAM enzyme is alive and well in the critters that bite us. <clears throat> and it's not so well in, in the individuals. And this is all new information. I'm, even though I've been studying it for so long, it's just been in the last few weeks that I've really come to understand the enormity of it. And uh, Dr. Liz and I uh, recently saw a great movie. Uh, if you haven't seen it, I would encourage you to see it. It's about Yogi Bear, a uh, famous uh, Yankee catcher. And it's called It Ain't Over. Very entertaining movie about his uh, gifted um, baseball playing. He'd sort of been eclipsed because of his personality. Um, people have forgotten what a great um, ball player he was. But he coined many phrases. They're called yogiisms, right? Well, he also coined a word called simplexity. And I'm, I've taken it to heart. And I've, I've, I really enjoy taking complex ideas and trying to boil them down into simple concepts that the average person can understand. Well, that's what we're talking about, the simplexity of the PAM enzyme. Right. It's amazing to see, you know, from a spectator sport, your evolution as you go further and further down these rabbit holes, just the implications that having bioavailable copper has beyond, I mean, you know, from a, from a, I guess, a, a general sense, the four main things of energy production and clearing exhaust and supporting uh, the immune system. And then um, also supporting um, other reactions, but actually seeing all the minutia of why and and continue to focus in further and further and further. So I just want to summarize a couple of things because one of the things that I see a lot that you've taught is the, the lack of bioavailable copper being loaded into ceruloplasm and having a percent that is not available. And I put a lot of emphasis morally on the vitamin A to D ratio so that the A can help load in the right. copper into that ceruloplasm. Um, yep. But now from what you're saying, if I'm interpreting correctly, when we have hyperglycemia, that also causes sort of the exodus of the copper being loaded into ceruloplasm. Is that is that a fair statement? It can work against it. Right. So, so think of it this way. There are two master enzymes that load copper into enzymes. These enzymes load copper into other, they're called cuproenzymes. And they have the, uh, the letters ATP7A and ATP7B. Well, 7B is called the Wilson's um, enzyme. And that's the enzyme that loads copper to make ceruloplasmin. And as you noted, you got to have retinol. It's got to be turned into what's called retinoic acid. It's actually a hormone. Uh, and I'm searching madly to see, does retinoic acid require the PAM enzyme? Uh, I haven't found that yet, but I think it does. And so um, the, the pump needs the retinoic acid in order to load the copper into the ceruloplasmin protein. And as you just noted, wow, if we've got a sugar problem, that hyperglycemia, according to the researchers in Russia, it's gonna, it's gonna cause a problem with the structure and function of ceruloplasm and the coppers are gonna leak out. Okay, that's a big, that's a big issue. The other, the other pump is called ATP7A, called the Menke's 
enzyme. And that enzyme is loading all the other copper enzymes. Incredible number of copper enzymes. But what's especially important is the ATP7A is what loads the copper into the PAM enzyme. And so you want to make sure that you've got the retinol in your diet to activate the pumps to get the copper into the critical enzymes that are running and regulating the body. And so it's it just becomes this house that Jack built, series of dominoes that have all got to be uh, lined up. But if you don't have copper in your diet, if you don't have retinol in your diet, those are two key components that are going to work against the body's natural ability to keep itself in balance, but also maintain its energy production, immune system, as you know, and so on and so forth. Right, right. And then so to, to follow that through, where I always say it becomes just this major domino vicious cycle that that gathers momentum. So if if the hyperglycemic tendency and the person that's taking, which maybe you can maybe comment and remind the readers after I finish my statement that the 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 nuclear receptor competes with DNA. And if we have too much storage D, all of that stuff that goes on. But when hyperglycemia states happen and we have high fructose corn syrup and everything that's going on, then that causes the copper to come out of the ceruloplasm. But furthermore, it causes the derangement of the PAM enzyme when we need insulin the most. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, again, we've been trained to believe in a, in a disease called insulin resistance. Again, it's, it's like a toy that doesn't have the battery. If the insulin hasn't been turned on, if one of the precursor peptides, chromogranin A, hasn't been turned on and then worked its way up the chain of, of uh, signaling peptides, well, then the sugars can't be cleared. Now, what's interesting, there's a, a famous copper researcher that we've talked about before. His name is Leslie Clavet, still actively uh, publishing, even though he's I think he's almost 90 years old now. He just wrote a, an amazing article last fall, and it was October of 2022. Um, I guess that's almost a year ago now. But um, it's called Chronic Copper Deficiency. And he wrote an article back in 1986 about copper deficiency and hyperglycemia high blood sugar, that there's a relationship there. If copper is low, you have a propensity to be high sugar, hyperglycemic. Now, it makes no mention of the PAM enzyme, in part because the, the PAM enzyme had barely been discovered. It was, in, I think it was 82 or 83 when it was first really um, keenly understood. Well, it's very likely he didn't know about that at the time. But what he did know was that um, people who are copper deficient have really compromised tolerance of glucose. They're called glucose intolerant. They can't, they just, they can't deal with the sugar. Sugar becomes very reactive in their body. And he made a point in this article from 1986, and he was alluding to uh, pediatric textbook from 1981, he said the most glucose 
intolerant people on the planet are children with Menke's disease. And what that means is these children, most of whom die before they're three years old, their copper pump, ATP7A, doesn't work. They can't load copper into the enzymes. And when you can't load copper into the enzymes, you can't regulate iron, you can't regulate oxygen, you can't regulate sugar, you can't regulate much of what's critically important for our body. But the most glucose intolerant people are children with Menke's disease. That was a light bulb moment when I read that. It's like, it hit me like a ton of bricks. It's like, oh my gosh. That means that copper status is at the thick and at the center of keeping the body in balance, particularly around sugar. And then when you find out that there's very sophisticated signaling around that, and there's a whole series of hormones that need to be active and turned on by the PAM enzyme that relies on this battery, then suddenly it's like, oh, it's a, it's a game changer in terms of understanding where the defect is and where the breakdown is in our body. Yeah, amazing. So just a curious question. So I, I know when I do genomic test interpretations, I look at those ATP7A, ATP7B, but also organized in that part of the pyramid, Morley, is the ATOX, right? Is there any relationship with that? Is that my understanding is that that enzyme helps to deliver that to the ATP7A and 7B? Is, is that accurate? Um, I think that might be right. Um, I'm trying to remember if ATP, ATOX, is that involved with the mitochondria as well? Yeah, so it's a copper metallochaperone protein that is encoded by the ATOX1 gene, right. and it plays a key role in delivering copper from the cytosol to the transporters ATP 7A and 7B. So then they would, then AT, ATOX, ATOX, is what supplies copper to the other chaperones. Correct. For the mitochondria. Right. So, so yeah. the thing is, people need to know that uh, what's a good way to shut down ATOX? Platinum. What is it? Platinum. It's cisplatin used in cancer treatment. It, it'll shut down ATOX. Interesting. And, and so what's also important to know is that um, glyphosate chelates copper out of the soil. So we don't get access to it in our food. What does high fructose corn syrup do? It blocks CTR1. That's the front door. Do you look at CTR1 in your work? Um, I, I'll have to make a note on it. I don't see it. I don't see that it's in the um, in the pyramid in that section. Well, CTR1 is the front door for letting copper into the cell. And if CTR1 has been blocked because of fructose, and that's the work of Myra Fields back in the 1980s and 1990s, uh, it's, a, it's a serious problem. And people don't realize the subtle um, sophistication of copper metabolism and how finely tuned it, it is. And it, but, but, but don't don't think of it, oh my gosh, it's more complicated than ever. It's all a supply issue. If you don't have copper on the front end, that's when all of these chaperones and transporters start to get affected. We've got to have a regular supply of copper. And that's the most important message is to get, get it out to the, to the populace is that we need 
these critical nutrients, magnesium, copper, the real B vitamins, uh, to really run the, the machinery of our body. Right, right. So just as a as an aside, I happen to have two um, or a homozygous SNP on the ATOX1 gene. And um, I think no matter what, if we are all in this environment and we all have these disruptors to copper metabolism, like you've said, high fructose corn syrup, glyphosate, iron-enriched filings, lack of retinol in our foods, um, incorporating too much vitamin D, um, all of the creating fear, like you've mentioned, all of these things, whether you have an ATOX1 gene or not, what I've looked at is that you don't need as much as those things to tip the balance of of power to to fatigue and exhaustion and burnout. Yeah, you're you're going to be uh, certainly compromised, but I think that to me, uh, I'm of the of the uh, camp that says that these gene issues are not permanent. I think they're more energy driven, and so we're back into a chicken and egg situation. And what can we do to restore proper energy production? That can begin to offset this um, allele, whatever whatever the the problem might be, and so I think that people need to realize that the research that that uh, Dr. Maines and Dr. Iper did, and they're a, they're a husband and wife team, um, by the way, um, but have done amazing research uh, over the over the decades. Um, they they clearly demonstrated that even if you did have a a genetic issue with your PAM enzyme, it can be recovered with proper copper supplementation. I think right. it's an important message for people to know because it's right. the genes appear very um, fixed and concrete and scary. And I think they are very um, malleable and they do respond to changes in the environment, certainly the energetic environment, especially. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I agree. And I, I, I use it as a, as a blueprint but at the end of the day, your your lifestyle and what we call the epigenetic factors are going to make those genes run. Right. What with the like, I always use the analogy: if a gene analogy is a two lane highway when it's when it's challenged the most, and eight lane highway when it's not, you could still have a lot of backup on an eight lane highway, and you could still have clearage of a two lane highway as well. Okay. So, yeah. um, so as far as the RCP goes with your new uh, uncovering of the importance of the PAM enzyme, does it lend more, lend more credence to the, the, the stops and starts that you've already put in there? Or, and or does it bring some new concepts into there as well? That's a, that's a great question. I don't, I don't know that we have um, command of this just yet. On the, on the surface, I don't see changes Big changes certainly are not going to be coming forth because I I think for whatever reason we've got a very good um, grasp of what it takes to rev up the engine. I think what the what the PAM enzyme does is it gives us a, a very clear understanding about where a major part of the problem takes place. Um, I, I think what it's also doing is underscoring the importance of proper supplementation, particularly around the copper. And I think we're increasingly skeptical about the prevalence of copper in the food system. I think people need to realize that, that the nutrient tables that you're relying on as providing information 
haven't been updated for a long time. So it's very flawed information there. And I think what we need is a regular steady stream of, of nutrients, which is what the protocol is all about. But I think what it also does is it underscores the importance of staying on top of the iron with the, the blood donations and the importance of releasing our fears. When I first started this work, I didn't really understand the emotional side of it. And I was blessed to be working with Rick Malter, who's a, a clinical psychologist and really had command of that. And he really tried to pass that on to me. But I don't think it's been until the last few years that I really understood the power of the emotional side to affect the physical side. And so I, I would encourage people to realize that, oh my gosh, I, you know, I, I might have this problem, Gene. Well, what you also have is maybe a chronic fear index that you've got to deal with that as well. Well, it's not just the gene, though. I mean, it's it's the test, right? It's the test result. So they'll have a test result, and they're really into their. And I see, and I would echo that sentiment: is I have to reassure the patients that I work with that they have everything they need in their power and their ability to heal to overcome this. And when you're doing the the proper principles, you, you can't forget that concept of you got this and you know because that fear is just going to drive you into the ground and when sure. you're doing all the right things but the markers aren't moving and the person is completely overwrought with fear it, it definitely derails them faster than any any other thing that i've seen with who i work with as well absolutely true and i, and I think it's behind every physical issue is an emotional dynamic right you need to really internalize that and the the emotional release um, programs that are out there like EFT or EMDR or motion code. You don't need to be lying on a couch for two years to try to figure this out. The whole idea is get people to release and get that process of release is very empowering. Yeah. So two, if we had enough money, Morley, to start our own little side business, I think two good ventures would be to start to open up an amino acid company that tests the C-chain, right? Or the C-end, the c Right. And right. the second one was you sent me something that I had a chance to look at just before we got on the call where it's only done in rats, but maybe you could tell us about that study where um, they're able to determine how well the ratio to whatever it is to SOD, and that gives us a status of copper uh, depletion. Uh, maybe tell us a little bit about that as well. Yeah, this was, um, I think it was from an article in the, what's it, 87? maybe 90, um, it was a written by a famous copper researcher, Joseph Prohaska, but um, he's now retired, uh, but he was a real luminary in his field during his, his heyday. And he was talking about inside the red blood cell, there's two um, components that can be measured. One is the superoxide dismutase enzyme, because the red blood cell produces oxidative stress, produces superoxide anions all the time. And the SOD, it's called ESOD, uh, erythrocyte SOD, um, needs to be able to clear that. And this, this particular assay uh, picks up whether that is in fact expressing. And the other is a chaperone called CCS, and it's the copper chaperone for the SOD enzyme, 
And so what they were pointing out is that in copper deficiency, um, I hope I get this right, I think the SOD was low and the chaperone was high. Well, the chaperone's rising because it's looking for copper to try to get it to Not the, there. That's what I figured too, yeah. And so it's trying to get the, get the component, get the, the battery to the superoxide dismutase so that it can maintain homeostasis in the red blood cells. And so uh, it's a very revealing test, but it's not commercially available. And so he was just, he was highlighting its value and encouraging people to look into it. Well, I know for a fact that there, it's not available. There, none of the true uh, sensitive tests for copper status are available. I mean, there are, there are a handful of them and they're all just MIA. And uh, that, that makes part of the intrigue of doing this work is finding ways to have definitive proof that we have a copper issue and it's, it's hard to come by. There's right. all, all sorts of measurements of iron, but nothing around copper. And right, copper and, and you so, so eloquently teach that in, in your RCP training. And one of the main ones is the copper to ceruloplasm ratio, which I alluded to a little bit earlier with vitamin E and, and glucose or hyperglycemia. So maybe just sort of give our listeners, because I always like to hear a little bit of an update on that or just re-clarify re from my understanding is ideally um, you want to have a 3.3 to 1 ratio of copper to ceruloplasm. And maybe you could tell me again why it's 3.3 to 1. And my analogy morally is always uh, what is it? Simplexicity? What was the name of the, what, what did you call it? Simplexity. Yeah. Simplexity. My simplexity is, it is for every glass of orange juice to make it most efficient, you, you need 3.3 oranges for, for one orange juice. And every, every, every time you use four or five, it's less right. efficient. And right. if you use one, you're not getting all the good nutrients in there that, that you need. Um, I think that's where it starts and ends in terms of how the analogy works. But as far as why is that such a good indication of the intelligence of copper versus, hey, I just, my copper is low or my copper is high, so to speak. Right. Yeah. The, well, the two most dangerous words in, in the field of, of healing and nutrition are high and low. Right? Everything's about bioavailability. It's not high or low. There's, there is no high or low. Uh, is it usable? Is it working? But uh, this actually goes back to research done in 1960 by two famed metal researchers, uh, Dr. Sternlieb and Scheinberg. Uh, they were actually working at um, AT&T Labs in upstate New York, 1960, and they're studying copper and ceruloplasmin. And they're the ones that actually developed this ratio of um, 100, part, 100 parts of copper to 30 parts of ceruloplasmin is considered ideal. You divide them and it's 3.33. And what I've come to do is look at that number, that ratio as being logarithmic so that a, a, an earthquake of 3.33 is very different than an earthquake of 3.83 or very different than an earthquake of 4.13. And so the thing is, it's going up by orders of magnitude. So, <clears throat> 3.83 versus 3.33, that's five times greater difference than it should be because the difference is five between eight and three. And I express it that way to get people's attention that the balance is off. 
because we'll we'll look at it, we'll see. Oh, it's I'm just I'm just a half a click away from where it's supposed to be. No, you're you're five times from where where you should be, and so I think it's I don't really recall the full um, explanation for why they felt that was key, but what they did indicate was it seemed to reveal that, that even under low copper or high copper conditions, the ratio should still be three point three three. And, and that's what I'm always looking for when I'm working with clients is where is their ratio? Now, right. just to make it more exciting, I've added a new uh, blood marker to the panel and it's looking at uric acid. And we haven't had a chance to really talk about that. Maybe that can be a, a, a conversation for number eight, yeah. Um, but, but what I learned um, in my research around uric acid and um, the whole field of metabolic syndrome and metabolic syndrome is fed by uric acid. Um, but when we're not making energy, when we're not making ATP, we're making uric acid. So uric acid is essentially the, the billowing black smoke coming out of our exhaust pipes of our mitochondria when we can't make ATP. And the uric acid is a clear indication that the body and the mitochondria are in a state of disarray. They can't make ATP. They can't recycle the ADP back to ATP or they can't get AMP back to ATP. And, and it's a crisis inside some set of mitochondria or an organ or, or what have you. So what I've done now is I'm measuring uric acid or we're looking at uric acid and the lab range is wide enough to put a Mack truck through sideways. So we're trying to really narrow it down and say, if, if you're not within four to five, then you've got a problem. And both high or low, I mean, both on the high and low side. Right, exactly, exactly. And okay. so when does heart disease kick in? Well, according to the practitioners who focus on uric acid, it starts at 5.5. That's a that's a really critical threshold. I've got clients that are in the sevens. Now it's making sense why they're having problems. Well, if we put it into a ceruloplasmin context, we have a new ratio now. We have ceruloplasmin to uric acid. Mm. Because ceruloplasmin, think of it as a surrogate for bioavailable copper. Well, where's where's copper most important? It's inside the mitochondria at complex four. Cytochrome C oxidase is what turns oxygen into water to, to release energy, critical activity. So I'm using cerulo, ceruloplasmin as a surrogate for complex four, and we've got uric acid now. Well, ideally the ratio, let's, let's say we're talking about men. So the ratio would be, or the number for uric acid for men would be five. So we've got 30, divided by five is a six to one ratio. And as soon as I see where someone is, if the number is well below six, I know that their copper's compromised and that's affecting their ability to make energy. Interesting. I'm always selfish to do these podcasts, not for my guests, but for me so that I can get so, those little insiders. I, interesting. So, so in order if just to sort of take that away, so ideally ceruloplasm is somewhere in the area of 30. 
And a lot of the people we work with, and I'm sure you see this in the 16s, 17s, 20s. And then if um, uric acid is above the five range, then that's going to cause that coefficient to be a lot less than six if you're dividing. Exactly. um, Right. And that's telling us that there's a, so the copper, the ceruloplasm is, is your surrogate for the electron transport chain. Is that, is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So I've got a colleague who um, in his uh, late 50s had to start um, meds for hypertension. It was really it was really defeating for him to have to do that. So we, we ran the panel. Well, he's had, a, he's had a lifelong issue with copper. He had Crohn's disease when he was a teenager. He's had all sorts of issues around copper that no one ever put into a copper context until we began working together. Right. But, but his ceruloplasmin is 16 his uric acid was 7.3 right and he said well well my uric acid is just over the range the range is is up to 7.2 right and i said no 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 i said and- so, so when you divide 16 by 7.3 it's a really small it's like 2.7 right it's not and even suddenly right. he went oh my god he's i'm 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 less than half of what i should be and i said that's exactly right Interesting. and, and it, is it definitive no. Is it directionally correct? Absolutely. It gives people something to hold their head on and they right. realize, hey, I've got to get on top of this copper issue. Right. So for women, 7.5 to 1 is the goal on them. Is that right? Yeah. Well, yeah. And that's where we're trying to refine it is, is we, we might even just say, we might just simplify it and just say everyone should be at a 5. I see. And then we have 30 divided by 5. And we can interpolate. Is, them. is there an upper ratio limit? Because I know you said with with uric acid being low, um, would you have say, let's say it was in the twos, and you had thirty, fifteen. What would fifteen indicate? That would tell you that the kidneys are not releasing the uric acid. The the enzymes that release uric acid from the kidneys are copper dependent, of course. And so what you'll often see is low uric acid with folks who are dealing with neurodegeneration. I see. So it's, it's, and I've told people this, it's still the same fundamental problem in lack of bioavailable copper. It's just depending on what system or, or right. organ system exactly. is being impacted by the lack of power. Right? Exactly. That's exactly right. Yeah. And so I think, I think the part that's hard for some folks to, to grasp is, how could this one lowly little mineral be so powerful and so important? And it's like, I'm not sure. I, I think our, our maker and mother nature designed us in a very unique way, but boy, it, you talk about an Achilles heel. And if, if the Achilles heel goes south, it, the downstream impact is staggering. So, so in wrapping up though, Marley, if we were to have a utopian world and we could do whatever we wanted by rubbing the genie as many times as we could, how would we fix this? Um, the first thing I would do, I mean, we have complete sway over the world, right? Yeah. Glyphosate is gone. High fructose corn syrup is gone. Statins are gone. That's where I'd start. And the statins, because they're mitochondrial disruptors, is is that what it is? Yeah, absolutely. And, and uh, again, we're, we're bucking we're bucking three big containers of activity. 
I mean, right. statins were the, the first trillion dollar product on planet Earth. I mean, right. it's a, it's a, there's a juggernaut behind it. Of course, we know that. But if we're, if we're trying to make a seismic shift, that's where I would start. And also, too, because of the fact that cholesterol is the, the oxygen sink, right? So if we don't have the ability to sequester that, then we have oxidation of lipids and so forth, right? Right. And the whole the whole controversy was they never told us what the problem was. The problem was the lipids were getting rusty. Well, why are they getting rusty? Because there was too much iron in our blood. Why was there too much iron? Oh, we didn't have enough copper and ceruloplasmin. They forgot to tell us the most important part. And so we were held hostage for 65 years around this, this blood chemistry that goes back to the beginning of time. So I just... So, so information. you know, it's, I think about you and your research. And last time we talked, you were a bit deflated with what's the purpose of this all. It sounds like <laughs> you're in a better place. Um, yeah, also, absolutely. too, um, I would imagine with the researchers, I mean, if I publish stuff on the PAM enzyme that was groundbreaking and it doesn't even hear a, a, a tree in the forest fall, I, I would want to you, you yell from the from the rooftops, hey, this is important here. Uh, you, you know, well, uh, I, I think that the the issue is, if nobody knows about it, why would they pay attention to the research? Out of sight, out of mind. Yeah, but and, there it's being the fact that it's being researched though tells you there's oh inquisitive minds out there like yourself. Absolutely, that, yeah, totally, yeah. totally agree. No, it's just and it's intensely researched. I mean, it's not just like, well, I'm kind of bored today. I think I'll take a look. At this is like we're talking about like a Manhattan project. Yeah. So so to keep a prelude to the part eight, I would love to get your and I was hoping to talk about it today, but I, I don't think we're obviously going to have time is the whole concept of ferroptosis, because that seems oh, to be okay. a big area of conversation when I'm doing the research with the, the nutrigenomics and and Bob yeah. Miller and sure. and, oh, yeah. you know, and I, I really want your chocolate and his peanut butter to talk together because every now and then do I hear the importance of bioavailable copper in, in that whole process. So anyways, maybe we can talk about that next time. Um, as far as, far as um, again, I mean, just let, let our listeners know if they've been under a rock for a while, where, where they find all your information. Yeah. Uh, social media, there's a magnesium advocacy group. There's also a, an RCP page, RCP for Root Cause Protocol. Uh, the website, rcp123.org. Oodles of information. There's a resource section that is enough to choke a horse. Uh, I've got a book, Cure Your Fatigue. I've got a product, uh, Recuperate. Now it's being supported by a suite of products with companies called Formula IQ. And you can just look up what they've got. And so we're continuing to... Um, push back both the, the tide of uh, lack of information, but we're also focusing on what are some solutions that we can really rely on. Beyond the protocol itself, let's get to some specific uh, components. And that's really what we're trying to bring forward. No, that's awesome. I appreciate your mission and your purpose. And I'm so grateful that I've joined uh, friendship with you and I really appreciate all the things that you do. Um, I'll leave uh, sign off for another time to be continued. And yeah, um, and I look forward to our next conversation, Morley. Absolutely, Joel. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you. 
Hey, thanks for tuning in to today's episode of your Adrenal Fix podcast, where our goal is really to teach exhausted and burnt out adults the truth about adrenal fatigue so that they can get their energy back quickly. And if you happen to be suffering with your own exhaustion and fatigue-based problems and you're not getting answers and you're frustrated and you're concerned and you really want to get back to the things that you're not able to do, then maybe it's time for you and I to book a discovery call. If that makes sense to you or what we talked about makes sense to you, then this is an opportunity for you and I to troubleshoot and figure out what's going on in your body, what's not working, what have you tried, how's it impacting you. Most importantly, figure out where you want to go with your health and why you're not able to bridge that gap. And if I feel I can help you and all the things that you need to be doing, I can recommend to you, I'll let you know. And if I don't know, I'll tell you that too. But my goal is for you to leave this call with a step-by-step game plan to learn how to bridge that gap and get your life back quickly. If I feel I can help you, I'll tell you what that will look like to work together. However, there's no obligation to do any further work and there's no charge for the call whatsoever. It's just really a one-on-one time for you and my team member or myself to get true value out of what's not working with your health and what are you missing in order for you to make that next step. If that makes a lot of sense to you, then go ahead and go to www.adrenalfatigueworkshop.com, all one word, adrenalfatigueworkshop.com forward slash apply. Now spacing is limited and it's a first come first first served basis and you have to be willing to to make that next step to get your health back or at least be serious about it if we feel we can help each other just go to www.adrenalfatigueworkshop.com forward slash apply and i look forward to giving you value and getting you your health back